Hey guys, Jack here. Uh, I'm super excited to announce, you know, a truly exciting episode of the podcast. One, just because the quality of our guest today, we have on Greg Raymer, who is the 2004 World Series of Poker Main Event Champion, just coming off a deep run in this year's main event. And the other reason we're excited about having Greg is uh, he's actually agreed to uh, do an event with us this upcoming November, November 12th. Uh, and what that event is going to be is the three of us, Greg, Zach, and I, are going to be hosting a 2-5 No Limit game in Akron, Ohio at the Poker On Air Studios. Uh, and that game will be live streamed with the three of our commentary. And participants will also receive uh, a document that outlines you know, their strengths and things to improve on as a player uh, with an optional comprehensive leak finder, which is a document that would uh, go in-depth on every hand that the participant played in. Uh, and then that's followed by a dinner between the participants, Greg, Zach, and I, which is an opportunity to meet us, but more importantly, to meet Greg and pick his brain. Uh, so we're really, really excited about that. For more information about that, you can head to our website, justhandspoker.com, uh, or you can email Zach or I, uh, Jack or Zach, at justhandspoker.com. Anyways, uh, without further ado, let's get on to the hand. Get it, let's get to the hand then. So we are deep in day five of the 2016 main event. Blinds are at 25,000, and I am starting the hand with 900,000 chips, so I have 18 big blinds. The average stack at this point is about two and three quarter million chips, so I only have like one third of the average stack at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the Next person out is going to get paid 49000 There is, let me get my numbers here for you, 337 million chips in play. And of the total prize pool, there is still about two-thirds of the prize pool left. So the total prize pool was a little over $63 million. There is $41.6 million left in the remaining 122 payout positions. Um, so the average person still in the field with 122 of us left is going to get paid 341000 And the next pay jump isn't for several spots. So, um, and, the, and the pay jumps are relatively small at this point. Um, you don't really get significant pay jumps until you get down to the last few tables. Um, mm-hmm. So even though we're, you know, ICM is in, in, a, is in play, It's actually not as big an effect at this point as you might guess because, you know, the pay jumps for surviving for some period of time just aren't that big of a deal. Um, You know, the ICM is more relevant when you're right on the cusp of the next pay jump um, at this point in the tournament because the pay jumps can be, you know, like the first payout in the main event was 15,000. The next payout was like 16,000. 
So once you survive the bubble and you're in the money, you know, outlasting, you know, another 147 players, you know, was going to get you just a little bit more money. So I don't think ICM math is that significant at this point in a tournament. So in the hand in question, it folds to me in middle position, and I look down at a pair of nines. Um, certainly this is a hand that, that I should be playing, and this is not a hand where I should be limping in, so I am raising. My standard raise is just the min raise at this point, since we're so deep in the tournament. Um, my personal opinion is that at this point, you know, raising two and a half or three X doesn't really accomplish any, anything significantly more than a smaller raise. So I raise to a hundred thousand. It folds to uh, Kenny Hallert in the small blind. Now I know who Kenny is, but I've never played with him before. And I've only been moved to this table and have been there for 30 or 40 minutes. So I really don't know anything about his game. And I really don't know much about anyone's game at this table because not a lot of hands make it to showdown. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know he's a good player. Um, but I don't know if he's on the tighter side, on the looser side, or anything like that. I know he has been the chip leader at other stages of this main event. Um, he's not the chip leader now, but still has well above average chips. So certainly a lot more than me, and more than average, but not a chip leader anymore at this point in time. Which would suggest that he might be more on the loose, aggressive side, but isn't very significant evidence to that effect. He's in the small blind, and he re-raises to 300000 The big blind folds, and now the action's on me. And really, the question comes down, in my opinion, to whether I should fold this hand or go all in. If I were out of position, I would have considered the stop-and-go play as a significant alternative. But since he's going to act first after the flop... Um, he would be the one who could be, you know, doing the, in, in his case, not the stop and go, but the go and go play. So in other words, if I call, I've put a third of my chips in the pot. I have less than a pot size bet left in my stack. And it's not like I'm going to be able to make some great decision as to whether to fold or call when he puts me all in on the flop, presumably. So that's really the question is, do I fold and keep my 800,000 chips or do I play this hand where I'm either going to lose and get paid 49000 or I'm going to win and I'm going to have about $1.9 in chips? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I'll note is that – or I'll note and then also pose as a question is uh, I think in cash – so first of all, let me just preface that I'm – not really a tournament player at all. I used to play MTTs when I was a lot younger, back on full tilt. Uh, but, you know, in the past few years, I've been almost exclusively cash. So, in cash strategy these days, I think a lot of the top players are exclusively three betting out of the small blind. Uh, do you think that's true in these, in, in like the main event at this stage? From a player, so do you mean? You do mean a hundred percent of the range that he plays is three bet as opposed to call. Yes. 
Okay, I do not know if that would be the case with him at all, for him personally. Certainly, he might be inclined to call in some cases because it's not like he has to raise to get rid of the big blind. Um, at this stage of the tournament, if the big blind has a weak hand, he is probably folding, even though he's getting these very inviting pot odds and he's closing the action. But that may not be true about this specific guy in the big blind of this hand, and Kenny might know that, and I don't know that. So Kenny might know that if he calls, that this guy is going to call with things like queen eight, you know, and king six, and, you know, other, you know, marginal hands. And certainly Kenny might have a hand where he would just assume that guy didn't play stuff like that um so it's possible that that he would know that i should either three better fold here because of who the big blind is and i should never call because the kind of hands i might prefer to call with are also hands where i really don't want the big blind to join in um he might also know that if he just calls that the big blind would be the kind of guy who would be inclined to squeeze and if that were the case, then the fact that he didn't, the fact that he didn't call would, uh, you know, if I was aware of that as well, I'd be like, oh, the fact that he raised instead of called almost caps his range. Like, oh, he wouldn't have aces or kings because if he had two aces or two kings, he would be inclined to flat and let the big blind squeeze. Um, but I don't know any of these facts. I don't know of any of that has an impact on the ranges. So I think we can probably lean towards his calling range would be very small. And mm -hmm. of the hand, of the hands that he's not folding, he's three betting all or most of them. Yeah. I mean, that sounds right to me. Although I think that sort of narrow calling range is probably, you know, a lot of the hands you'd really like him to have here. Uh, you know, probably being some of the pocket pairs that are lower than nines. Uh, yes, if he does have a calling range, it would probably lean towards those where he's either going to hit the flop completely or miss it completely, as opposed to things like suited aces, where most of his hits are draws. Still against your stack size, I think it's it's sort of a strange play for him to be set mining uh yes so i mean you can argue that one both ways you know does he want to put in seventy five thousand more and maybe he figures my stack is short enough that it's going to be hard for me to get away from it you know if, if if he does flop a set i probably have a hand that i'm going with um so he might assume that you know in other words if i had three million it might be that he's going to have a harder time getting 800,000 more out of me than if I only have 800,000 more. If you know what I mean. It's like sometimes mm. it's easier for the guy to get away from it. Like, oh, as soon as you check raise on the flop, he gets away from it because he's committed two or 300,000 out of a 3 million chip stack versus committing two or 300,000 out of a 900 stack where it's kind of like oh wow i've already put in so much in my stack i can't fold here very often 
Yeah. So it, it can go both ways to some extent. I mean, in, in some ways, I almost have like a really good stack size for him to set mine because, you know, by the time I might figure out that I'm beat, it'd be I've already put in so much in my stack that maybe I still feel I can't get away from it. You know, if I have a good, if I don't have, you know, air. Yeah, I just think. Well, first, let me ask: What's the uh, big line stack size? You know, at this point in time, I really don't remember. So I'm guilty of that same transgression of not having all the facts. But uh, um, I was like the second shortest stack at the table. So certainly the big blind had me covered. Um, he did not have Kenny covered. Kenny was still a bigger stack at this table. Um, and I think Kenny at this point might have had five million, six million chips, something like that, mm. to start the hand. So a very good stack compared to average, just nowhere near as deep as he had been, you know, a few hours or, or, or you know, beginning of the day. Um, if you look at it from the math from a cash game point of view, the difference for me between folding and, and playing, if I play, I need to win 42% of the time if we're just going to do the chip count math. Because if I fold, I have 800,000. If I play, I'm going to have 0 or 1.9. And so 42% of 1.9 is 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 for is 800,000. So from the more cash game perspective, do I feel like pocket nines is going to win over 42% of the time against his range? And the the break even point there is I mean, for for me to be correct to fold against that range, he needs to be down to about the top seven percent of all hands. Right. And I just felt like his range was a lot wider than just the top seven percent. That's that's my hunch too. Uh, do you think you're ever getting called by a worse pocket pair uh, if you move in here? I do think he would have to call because at that point um, he's put in three. You know, my call is three, and now my raise is six. So he's getting two to one, and more than two to one because of the big blind and the annies. So getting more than two to one, I don't think he can fold a pair because too much of my range can be ace-king, ace-queen, you know, something like that. And... You know, so again, if we do the math from his point of view, in other words, I think the only reason, if he'd been the big blind, he probably just goes all in. But because he's the small blind, he doesn't want his, you know, raise to be all in because, like, well, so much of his range would include hands where if the big blind calls the all in, he's hating life. Um, so he wants to raise to get rid of the big blind. And maybe also to balance his range, like, hey, I'm always going to three bet or fold, so I got a three bet here if I'm going to play this hand. Yet I don't want to, like, put Greg all in because now it's such a big raise that I might be pot stuck if the big blind shoves. Yeah. And, and now on average I might be behind, but I might be pot committed. So by making it 300, I'm essentially telling Greg, hey, you're all in this hand or you're folding it right now, but I also am leaving room to get away if the big blind doesn't fold and if he's going to correctly do that with, you know, a lot of hands where he would fold if the big blind shoved, 
then he probably needs to also play it the same way when he has like two aces and he's never going to fold if the big blind comes over the top. So I suspect that's more of the reason, you know, it's not that I don't think he's making a 300 because he's ever going to have a hand that he would ever fold. If I went all in, I think he's just keeping himself balanced and 300 is enough. I mean, maybe it could be that his normal three bet, if he and I had both had lots of chips, if he, you know, if I had had 3 million chips, you know, more like an average stack, maybe he doesn't three X, you know, I made it a hundred. He made it 300. Maybe he makes it 250 more commonly. Um, but he's making it a little bit bigger because he wants to make it clear to me that, Hey, you're either folding or getting it all in. Um, mm-hmm. there's lots of scenarios where, you know, if it had just been him and me and he goes all in, there might, there, there'd be hands that I would fold that if I thought he, he might fold to my four bet that I would four bet with a hand that he really wishes it folded. I mean, imagine if he has ace jack and I have king queen. Um, if if he had re-raised to two hundred, you know, and now I'm thinking that I can get him to fold and I shove all in, but he just said to himself, "I'm never folding." Well, now he's all in, but he's not a huge favorite with ace jack against king queen. He would much rather that I have folded and given him the hundred plus the blinds and annies. Yeah, he'd make he'd make more he'd win more chips on average by me folding and giving up my hundred than me getting it all in for nine hundred and not being that far behind with King Queen against Ace Jack. You know, or if I had a small pair against his ace king, now I'm actually a small favorite, and he really, really wishes I'd fold and given him the hundred. So he he doesn't want to raise an amount where he could induce a four bet from me with a hand that I might have folded. Um, so I think the 300 is, is a good raise size on his part with every hand that he is going to raise with. Mm-hmm. So do you think he has any sort of three bet fold range here? I, I don't think he, I don't think he does. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's at this point, it's kind of just a math problem, uh, about, you know, what his range looks like. And I think I need 42%. The question is how much more than that do I need for the ICM because we are in a tournament. But, you know, pocket nines against a hand like a top 10% is, if he has top 10%, I'm 47% to win. And and I'm sure the ICM is not going to move the needle from 42 to 47 in this situation since we're not on any kind of cusp or bubble or anything like that. So, and that was primarily what I was, in, in the moment, I'm just thinking to myself, okay, this is about how often I need to win. How much do I want to adjust that for ICM? And I just felt like his range was wide enough that folding was wrong. But, you know, I really hated the whole situation. It's a, it's, it's a spot where I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm supposed to play here, but it's not like if I had folded that it would have been a huge mistake. Even if we determined that folding was clearly a mistake, it wouldn't have been a big mistake. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those sort of perfect hands where you know, when you're dealing with these sort of middling pocket pairs and you're talking about how you fare against like a top 10 range, then a big part of 
a big part of the change when you're moving up and down pairs is just like how many pairs worse than you are in that top ten range, how many pairs better than you are in that top ten range. Because pretty much, I mean, pretty much anything else in the top ten range, you're uh, basically a flip with. Yep. So nine seems like that sweet spot where, when you need about forty-five percent equity or so, uh, the smallest differences in how this player is going to play are going to turn this from a correct decision to an incorrect decision. Whereas with, I think seven certainly eights likely. You know, you've shifted to a fold being a lot better, where tens plus, I think, you know, your ship is pretty clear. So, sorry, you got put in this spot. Yeah, it's definitely, it's the spot I I seem to be finding myself in a lot when an opponent is three-bet me, and I'm like, it's like, man, like, if, if the stack, if the effective stack were bigger or smaller, it would be an easy decision. And if the, uh, uh, if my hand was like a little stronger or a little weaker, it would be an easy decision. You know, and especially when I get an opponent who's like three bet shoving. You know, I mean I raise, they three bet shove because they're kind of short, you know, and I'm just sitting there going like, really? You know, like I open with King Jack and this guy shoves, you know, and I'm like, man, I'm getting like this price and I know you're not bluffing. I know you think you have the best hand. So I'm kind of like, God, if you had just been able to raise a little bit more, I could absolutely fold. And if you'd raised a little bit less, I would be happy to call anyways. You know, and if my hand was king-queen, I'd be happy to call. And if my hand was king-ten, I'd be happy to fold. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it's amazing how often you seem to find yourself in those spots where you're just like, if I could adjust the stack size or the hand strength, either way, it'd be like, now I'm like, feel like I'm I, I would feel certain that I'm making the right decision. And now it, it kind of feels like I'm right in the middle. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I, You know, ne- neither Jack and I have, like, seriously studied ICM, which I would imagine be, you know, for a hand that's on the margins like this. Even, like you said, because the pay tip isn't imminent, ICM doesn't play as large as a role as it might directly before a pay jump. It's still plays enough of a role that I don't think, you know, one can definitively say what the right answer is without a deep understanding of ICM, which, you know, I personally don't have. But my my poker intuition, just based on what you're saying about this hand, is that from a, you know, just chip EV standpoint, this is definitely an all-in against, you know, the player as described range. And, you know, I think it'd be interesting to do the ICM calculation and figure out you know, what the correct play is, with the caveat that even, you know, the world's elite players that have run a lot of simulations uh, and have their own ICM tools don't agree and, you know, have a lot of disagreements when doing ICM decisions. So it, it, it could be one of these hands that it is really hard to know what the correct decision is. Well, if you know the opponent better, if you can narrow his range any direction or widen his range and be sure of it, the decision becomes a lot simpler. Um, you know, if I could have said, oh, he has to have a top 5% hand here, then it becomes an easy fold. If if I'm sure that he's making this play with a wide range of hands, you know, that it's top 20% or, you know, 20% of his hands, you know, then it becomes an easy not fold. But, 
you know, I'm just guessing at his range. And but I was actually putting him more in the ten to fifteen percent um, type range overall. Um, that he would, you know, he'd be doing this about ten fifteen percent of the time, um, and partly because, you know, of my situation as well. Like I hadn't been at the table a long time, but. I had played two hands since I'd been at that table, and in both cases, I had opened for a raise and folded to a three bet. Oh, um, that's yeah. I mean, that's big. Yeah, and 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 both times, you know, it was because again, I like okay, I've opened, you know, with ace ten suited, and now a guy three bets me, and and it's like okay, I'm I'm not yet in a position where I'm going to, you know, all in or fold, and and it was always circumstances as well where. You know, I actually could give my opponent a stronger range um, for other reasons. So, you know, actually, you know, once it was I raised with suited connectors and I got three bet and I'm not deep enough to play. The other time I had like ace 10 suited, the guy who three bet me had three bet shoved, you know, for just a little bit more than I had. And, uh, you know, I just felt like he wasn't ever bluffing. So I'm just like, yeah, Ace Ten is definitely behind his range and not priced in. Because I didn't really give that guy in that particular spot hardly any chance of having an underpair where I was flipping. So I was like, yeah, he's got tens and above, or Ace King, Ace Queen. You know, I'm in bad shape against every hand in his range, and not getting much of a price. So, but. And that certainly, you know, makes me think that because Kenny is still a bigger stack that he can maybe feel I'm desperate or something that I'm trying to make something happen and but I'll have to give it up again. Yeah, I mean, I think the combination of a couple of things makes me like this shove even more. One, I mean, what you just said about him having seen you uh, raise fold twice pre-flop, uh, it makes me think he's a lot more likely to I don't know if if steel is the right word, but to you know feel comfortable pressuring you, you know, with these sort of between ten and fifteen percent hands. Uh, the other thing is I think in other situations uh, you're gonna have a bigger your skill edge is gonna be more important in terms of you like sustaining your tournament life. Uh Obviously, if we're if you're deeper, that's definitely true. But I think also the fact that you're new to this table. Uh, if you were at a table where you had really really strong reads on a lot of your opponents, and you felt you were going to play really really well against, uh, you were going to have a, a really good read on what their shoving ranges were going to look like, uh, what their squeezing ranges would look like, then it seems like a time to be more cautious in terms of preserving your stack. But at this point, uh, I think given our rough sense of like what our equity is uh, and our <laughs> very rough ICM calculation, I, I think like a, a ship is pretty clear. Well, I don't disagree with you, obviously, since I shipped it. Um, I would say maybe the best argument, you know, if we're not going to just do math-based arguing, is for me to fold would be like, oh, 800 is a really good stack size for three-bet shoving. People are raising to 100 to 100 between 100 150,000 to start. 800 is a really good number to shove over the top where they can't call unless they, you know, they can't call just because they feel priced in. 
you know, with a mediocre hand. They actually have to think their hand is, you know, it's possibly the best hand, at least some of the time. So that would be one of the better arguments for not calling, I think, is that I'd have a good stack size for that, which yeah. would allow me to quickly, you know, recover what I've lost, so to speak. But I certainly don't have a table where it's like, oh, I know these people, I have good reads, and I can make some great decisions in the future. Hopefully I'll make great decisions in the future, but it's not going to be because I know these people so well. I, I may learn them later, but at the time I don't know them at all. Yeah, and I I think that's a good point, but I want to sort of make the argument that it's not uh, taking it away from mathematical terms. Uh, I think basically we're just factoring into this decision the likelihood that we're going to have a, a stack size that people will play poorly against. Uh which I think is basically what you're saying. I mean, so if we're bypassing this like sort of close to even EV decision because we think that with our stack size we're going to be able to get into situations where people are going to make negative EV decisions against us at a high frequency of the time, that is a very compelling mathematical reason to fold. But I, I, don't, I don't. I don't know if they're going to make bad decisions per se. I just I'm going to be able to put them in tough spots. Um. You know, I mean, if you open and I shove, it's pretty hard for you to call unless you have a, a you know, premium hand when it's 650,000, more. Um, you know, you're not going to want to just like, oh, what the hell, let me snap him off here with my ace nine suited that I opened with. Um, where it's kind of like if I'm not full of shit, then you're always behind. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think it's not so that I'm making them make mistakes, but I'm putting them in tough spots where it's kind of like, well, maybe he's doing this with a sooty connector or whatever because he knows he has a perfect stack size to three-bet shove, and maybe I should call with my weak ace or my medium pair. Um, but overall, they're not going to want to make that play. And, and of course, there's always the psychology of this being deep in the main event that... Uh, some players become a lot more timid about calling off, um, even when it's not their whole stack. Even if it's not going to cripple them, they still there might be some hesitation to like calling off in this spot and doubling up, you know, a player, you know, where I could look stupid. I mean, I'm not at the feature mm-hmm. table. I tell you, if I was at the feature table, I'd have been a much more likely to fold in this whole scenario because. When you're sitting at the feature table and every hand is being recorded and might be on TV, people are so much less likely to be like making crazy moves. I mean, the reason you might ever see crazy moves on the TV show is because, you know, they're editing, editing the whole thing and they're picking out the hands that are the most interesting. But on average, people are much less likely to make crazy moves or to play weak hands because they don't want to look stupid on TV. And so, you know, with a three-bet shoving stack size, that three-bet shove gets through a lot more often. Because even if someone's sitting there thinking that, like, oh, mathematically, I think I should call here with this ace-nine, they're like, but, man, you know, I I realize I'm going to be wrong in hindsight fairly often. He's going to show me a pair of nines or higher or a bigger ace. 
fairly often he is going to have one of those hands. And now I'm going to look kind of stupid. My friends are going to tease me about what the heck you calling off all those chips with ace nine into his ace king. Are you an idiot? You know, so in other words, even though it's purely hindsight, negative reasoning by their friends or whatever, they know they're going to get that. And so they're a lot more hesitant to make those calls and they're a little more likely to just fold. I think a lot of times in tournaments, especially Greg, for you personally, where you know, the vast majority of the time you have an edge on the players you're playing against, you know, passing up on even EV decisions uh, is likely to make sense in the context of a tournament or, you know, very marginally plus EV decisions. But this deep into the main event and the guy who raised you in the small blind as a professional, I'm not sure that logic still applies. Again, I don't know how kind of good your table is or how good the rest of the field is, but I imagine it's like, primarily like very good professionals where that edge that you have is you know much lower um and yeah yeah i mean going forward at this point in the tournament whatever edge whatever edge you or any player had at the beginning of the tournament is now reduced dramatically because so many of those weaker players have busted out um so you know whatever edge i want to give myself at the beginning of the event on day one, here on day five, my edge would be very small, and no one's edge would be big. Um, whoever the best player in the field is at this point doesn't have a, any kind of massive edge. But there are still some weak players here and there, and you can still potentially have a table with several of them. Um, maybe more relevant, you might find yourself at a table with some players who you can read really well and who you know you can play against them individually with a very high edge but i'm fairly new at this table and really about all i've seen is like raise and take it or raise three bet and take it and not much else going on you know a couple of hands where there's been a raise and or a three bet with a call and then like a c bet has won the pot on the flop mm-hmm. so nothing at this table to make me think oh, here's a bunch of players who I can read well, take advantage of, you know, nothing like that. So no particular reason to think that I'm any kind of huge favorite at this table at this point in the tournament. Um, So I don't think, you know, saying like I should preserve my tournament life because I'm going to find way better spots against these players, I don't think that has much of an impact and to be honest, I think most people massively overvalue that concept. Um, you know, a friend of mine did an article, Matt Matros wrote an article for Card Player many, many years ago. And he had gone through and his, and, and I remember when I read the article, his math all made sense to me. I, I think it was, you know, accurate that he said, imagine it's the first hand of the main event and you're three times better than average and an opponent moves all in how big of a favorite do you need to be to correctly call? And his conclusion was 6%. So if you if you thought you're 53-47 to win this hand, even though you're three times better than the average player in the field, you should call. And you'll make more money on average in the long run than by folding. So even there, the, the, you know, the margins are fairly small, even though it's clear at this point you're a huge favorite against the field. Um, I think a lot of tournament players massively 
overvalue that concept of like, well, I'm a good player. I should maintain my tournament life and find a better spot. Because the thing is, you've got to win all the chips to win the tournament. And if you're passing up on lots of spots where you're the favorite, it becomes that much harder for you to ever win all those chips. So it's there's truth to the concept, because if you were the average player in the field, if you were 50-50, you should win, because, like, oh, wait, I've already posted my big blind that represents, you know, one two-hundredth of my stack. If I'm exactly 50-50, then I'm making money by calling. Um, so if you were dead average in the field, you should call every time. Here, the fact that you were three times better, you now needed to go from 50% to 53% to correctly call. Yes, yeah, it sounds like in some ways the uh, the less skilled players have a, a huge edge. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that they have not a huge edge, obviously, but they. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. but they can pursue small edges more correctly. Um, yeah, they can. They can get it in. I mean, by that logic, you could probably, if you're a bad player, you should be getting it in as a small, uh, a small dog often. Exactly. If you can get it all in, and you know you're. And you know that you're just slightly behind. I mean, put it this way: if it's again, if it's that same first hand, and uh, my opponent shows me Ace King before I decide what to do, and I look down and I see a small pair, you know, if if that pair makes me fifty three forty seven or better, then I should be calling. But if we switch that around and let's say that like, oh, my opponent shows me deuces and I have ace king if i'm a if i know i'm a below average player i should take this flip even though i'm a little bit behind because this gives me a better chance of making money than by folding but i i'm pretty sure there's no bad players that would ever make that decision <laughs> or they, they might call but they wouldn't be because i mean if they could think it through that fully they're probably not such a bad player yeah <laughs> right exactly it's sort of impossible to to be like three times worse than the field, and also realize that like you should be shoving with forty seven percent. Maybe in a super, yeah. maybe in one of those super high rollers. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 sort of what I was thinking too. Uh, well, I mean, there. I mean, so many other things influence the decisions. Kind of like, oh, did some rich guy put me in, and I'm free rolling for ten percent, and I should gamble early because I'll either build a stack or I'll get busted and have time for something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's funny. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, Greg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I think we definitely got a proper hand analysis out of that tournament hand, even though it was a first for us. And yeah, th- thanks for coming on and bringing in, bringing in the bust out hand. Uh, just, I'm sure our listeners would be interested uh, you know, what was the run out? How did the bust out actually happen? Uh, I shoved, he called, he had pocket tens and neither of us improved. Oh, so, um, I don't remember what was on the board, but it, it's certainly, it's not like, you know, I was going to ever be able to win the hand post flopper. It's not like I could have called and then won it after the flop or anything. I very much doubt if I had flatted there that Kenny would have done anything but just shove every flop no matter what. Um, even if it comes horrible for him, like, you know, ace-king-nine, 
I mean, he doesn't know I have pocket nines, but just the fact that, like, oh, the ace, the king. And then if it's like, oh, if I, if I were ahead with tens, the nine is one of the cards that's more likely to, you know, like a nine or an eight. You know, that might be a hand that Greg's more likely to call with than, you know, like deuces or threes or fours or fives, you know, or the smaller cards. So, you know, even if it's just a flop that just seems like the absolute worst to him, he still might shove. Um, you know, from his point of view, he could be thinking of it as a go-and-go play. And, you know, for all he knows, like, what if I have pocket jacks? Well, ace-king-nine is a perfect flop for him. Because now if he shoves, I might throw away the best hand. So, I mean, I, I didn't think there was any chance. Again, if I had been out of position, if he had done this from the button, I would have flatted, and then I would have shoved the flop. And, you know, whether that would have worked or not, I have no idea. But that would have been, I think, the better way to play it if that had been possible. But since he's going to go first from the small blind, I didn't see any purpose in doing anything. In other words, I'm either going to fold here to save my 800,000 chips or I'm going to shove. And I just wish, you know, I think if we'd turned the hands around, if I'd had tens and he'd had nines, it probably plays out the same way. Well, well, hold on, actually. Um, if you think you have no fold equity uh, pre-flop and that your opponent's going to be shoving 100% of flops, then doesn't it make, wouldn't it make more sense to flat? Well, no, because what flop am I going to see that makes me want to fold? Uh, the ace-king. Ace-king 10, ace-king 6. Yeah, I mean... But what if he has pocket eights? Now I'm letting him beat me when he has when he does have a smaller pair. Yeah, but I, I feel like on that flop, if you looked at his range and said, okay, this player's... I mean, if you're positive that... I'm not positive that this player is shipping 100%. But if they were, then you could just... If you knew their range, then you would know how you were doing after that flop. And probably on an ace-king-10 flop, you would be doing a lot more poorly against that range of hands sure. you were up against before. So No, that's true, but again, it, it I, I, I don't think that that works out because now at that point I'm getting two to one on the call as well. And so I have to weigh that in. I mean, the fact that there's an ace on the flop makes it slightly less likely that he started with an ace and so on. Um, I think by the time I factor all that stuff in, you know, and then to be honest, when he doesn't bet the flop, does that mean that, like, oh, he hit the crap out of it? Like, you know, if the flop had come ace-king-eight, does that mean he has to have a set or top pair or better? So he figures, I'm way ahead or way behind, let's check and induce a bluff? Or is this my opportunity to get him to fold the pocket tens? You know, if he checks to me on the ace-king-eight, like... If I don't bet here, was this my chance to get him to fold the jacks or the tens? Or was this him like, oh, I've hit this flop so hard that I will go ahead and check it and give Greg a chance to put his chips in and not give him a chance to get away? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much of that going on that it, it makes it such a complicated decision. If, if this were an opponent that I thought I could read his tells, his body language fairly accurately, I would have considered that option. But mm-hmm. since I really haven't seen him play, I mean, I, I saw him play one other hand where he, like, raised and took it. I haven't seen anything that lets me think I can read him 
Um, I think that the number of mistakes I make post-flop is going to balance out the number of times I'm able to correctly get away from it. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. But, I mean, you know, there's some merit to what you're saying, but I just don't like the thought of putting a third of my chips into the pot to then try to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think oh, sorry. anytime you have any full equity preflop, which I do think is possible. Uh, yeah, he has to be really, really full of crap with his three bet, though, for him to ever fold. Now, now that he's getting better than two to one, I mean, if you, uh, you know, start trying to run the math on that, like what kind of crappy hand? Oh, we're hearing Zach's funky music again. It's like, what kind of crappy hand does he have to have, you know, where he's not getting at least, you know, that, you know, low 30% equity? Yeah. Well, then I guess in that case, then I think a big merit for shoving is just like when when this player doesn't doesn't bet or when if you call and it yeah i just don't think the flop works at that i think it's just better to get the money in if he's calling with his whole range you're just gonna have you're gonna get the money in good more often i think yeah i I i think so um like i said even if he ends up having something like small suited connectors and i have an overpair i think he's gonna feel pot stuck to call um because he'll be in reasonable shape against you know all my like ace king type hands and uh, again, he's getting two to one. So, yeah, he's in horrible shape against overpairs, but at least he's getting more than two to one. And when he does the math to balance it out, it'll be like, yeah, he's priced in. Um, and it won't be horrible if he folds, even if that now means he had to have two cards lower than a nine, because uh, he still might have been able to like outplay me or something if I had just called him. Again, I would hate to just call him, you know, have him shove the ace-king flop and then somehow find out later that he had 5-4 suited. Yeah, I I, I put in a third of my stack and folded to a hand that had almost no equity. (laughs) Yeah, I think... I'm sorry. I just don't like the idea of calling for a third of my chips to then evaluate. Um, I just think and, and I'd advise against that for almost everybody because you're pretty much always going to evaluate wrong so often. I mean, if I flop a set, obviously, great. I can't screw it up. I'm never going to fold. But anytime I don't flop a set, there's just so much opportunity for me to make a mistake. I definitely agree with you, Greg. I think like maybe the one place I disagree with you is if if you were 100% confident that you knew this player's strategy... Uh, you know, one of those being that, you know, it's three betting top fifteen percent of hands and shoving all flops when you flat. Then I think if you can be that confident about a player strategy, then the flat makes sense. But yeah, I think what we've sort of gotten to here is that I don't think there's any way to be like that confident about that strategy and rather than like risk making a mistake uh when we can pretty confidently get the money and good uh, pre-flop. I think it just makes a lot more sense to shove. Yeah, like I, said, I hit the spot. Um, if the ICM were stronger at this point, like if we were getting close to the the bubble of the tournament of making the money or not, well, now my, you know, instead of needing 42% equity 
to correctly get it all in, um, I might need 50% because we're about to go from no money to 15,000. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a big, big pay jump. Whereas, you know, here at this point in the tournament, it's like, yeah, I've locked up 49,000, but the next pay jump is not anywhere near 15,000 more. Um, you know, the next pay jump is probably 5,000 more, 6,000 more, something like that. So it's not a huge increase and it's several places away. Um, you know, we're still like three tables away from another pay jump or something or at least a couple tables away from another pay jump. So the next pay jump isn't going to come for at least another hour or two. Um, And it's not going to be a huge pay jump. It's going to be 10, 15% more than what I'm currently getting. So the ICM is in play for sure. I need better than 42% to correctly get it in. Um, But it might only go up to 43, 44% that I need to correctly get it in. And if I want to make an adjustment to say, oh, well, I'm better than the average player in the field, at this point in the tournament, I can't, you know, at best, that's probably 45% now. And and I have 45% equity, you know, unless he's going to be only making this play with, like, the top 7 8% of all hands. Yeah, that seems unlikely. I just, I, yeah, I can't, I wouldn't guess he'd be, he's playing quite that tight. Especially where if he makes a mistake and loses to me, you know, he goes from six million, five million down to, you know, five or four million or something. And he still has an above average stack. So given all those, I just wouldn't think he'd be playing quite that tight. But I mean, maybe he is that tight and I just didn't know it. Or maybe he's so super loose that I was an idiot for even thinking of ever folding a pair of nines. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know his game well enough to know. I would guess he, he's, you know, got a good range, and it's a, a reasonable range, not too tight or too loose. But if that's the case, then certainly I think 10%, top 10% or so is an appropriate range for him at this point. It's really hard not to be results-oriented in such unique spots like this, you know? Like, it's one thing to, like, evaluate a cash game spot that on some level will come up again if you play with any regularity. Um, but... You know, getting deep in the main event, as you know, is very difficult, and you know, it's maybe you, maybe you're not as aware of its difficulty. <laughs> Having won it no. and recently been, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm sure. No, I. This is the first time I've. <laughs> I, this is the first time I've cashed in the main event since 2005. Mm. 2004 is the year you, you won, correct? Right. Yeah, I was. I won in 04. I was 25th in 05. Oh wow! Have not cashed since. We have it. Yeah, I've had some horrible runs in the main event. I've had horrible day ones, many, many, many times. Um, you know, and I, I made day three once between now and then. Made day two a couple of times in that in that gap. Um, but mostly busted on day one and, and all kinds of just ridiculous stuff. I had a table a few years ago where it became obvious in 15 minutes, don't bluff ever. Like, no one at this table should have ever been bluffing ever. If anyone successfully bluffed, it's like, you know, nine high got ten high to fold. 
you know, something like that, maybe. I mean, people would tank on the river, and and then they would call with bottom pair. So it was just, there was no point in bluffing, no matter how scary the board. And that's fine. It's like, we're super deep, I can just wait for a hand, you know, and then get paid off. By the time I got busted, late in day one, if I had played every single hand dealt to me, I don't think I would have had the best hand more than twice. <laughs> so it was just like, here's a table where you cannot bluff, and I am just never, ever making a hand. And so it was just literally impossible for me to win under those circumstances. Um, and one of the two hands that I like definitely, you know, made, I mean, I won one pot in like seven hours of play. My pocket aces held up. Were you, jo- and, were and you joking was, around with it with some of the players at the table? Give, no, you- no, because I don't want them to like think that they might consider folding after all this. I mean, the funny thing is, the other hand that would have won, I raise in middle position with pocket jacks. I get called by the cut off the button in both blinds. So five of us see the flop that comes king, queen, and a small card. I don't remember exactly which one. So it's like king, queen, five, rainbow. No flush draw. The small blind bets, the big blind raises. So I'm like, okay, I fold my pocket jacks. You know, I got a bet, a raise, and two people behind me. Like, you know, dead obvious decision. The cutoff and button fold, the small blind calls. The turn and the river are both small cards that do not, like, add any draws to the board. And both this turn and the river go check, bet, call. When the big blind gets called on the river, he turns over pocket nines. And the small blind wins with pocket tens. And you're wow. just like, like, what is going through these people's minds? Like, you just called my raise preflop with nines and tens. <laughs> and then when the flop, and, and five of us see a flop of king, queen, and now you guys are going to bet, raise, and like never fold. Like that is that is like an unbelievable hand to me. I mean, I mean, like that was the my aces held. This was the hand I could have won if I'd known well enough, if I could read minds or whatever. Um, and then all day long, I like you know I'm I'm even talking about things like, oh, I clearly folded my deuce seven to a raise preflop, but would have flopped three of a kind. I'm not. I mean, I didn't do that. I mean, if I had played every single hand, including the crap. I was like, I never saw a spot where I'm like, yeah, I think I would have won this hand. I would have made the best hand if I'd played even those crappy starting cards. So it was just a scenario where you can't win, at least the way things had been going up to that point. Um, The only question, you know, if I wanted to replay any of those hands that I played all day in my mind is like, should I have lost less on any of those hands? But there was never a hand where I'm like, oh, I should have raised her on the river. The guy would have folded. Because, I mean, like I said, I've seen people make these call-downs that are just insane, you know, with nothing. Whether they're right or wrong, you know, they're calling down with all kinds of super weak hands. So there just was no point in trying to bluff anyone at this table. And, uh, you know, so some days that's, you know, that's the way poker is. Some days you just, given the way the cards ran out, you were not going to win today. You, the only question is, should you have lost less? And the same thing in a cash game. 
you know, there are going to be days where no matter how intelligently you played all day long, you were guaranteed to lose today. You know, it would have, you would have needed to be psychic or something to have, to have come out ahead for the day. But you still are evaluating your play because, like, did I lose more than I should have on some of those hands? Or did I miss an opportunity to win a pot here or there that I should have won? Even though it wouldn't have turned the tide, I still would have been a net loser for the day, but I might have lost less. And then, of course, other days you win lots. You still should be evaluating because, like, well, did I make a few mistakes and I could have won more? So even if you're like, oh, I pocketed $1,200 in a 1-2 game, like, but if I hadn't made a couple of mistakes, would I have pocketed 1400 I hope our listeners were listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm not, I'm not telling you the story because I'm, like, looking for sympathy on how bad I ran that day. But, you know, it is just a lesson that, like, it doesn't matter how good or bad you're running. You still need to be trying to play each hand as perfectly as you can so that you can win more and or lose less. You know, it's it's not that often that you can take a hand that most people would lose and turn it into a winner. Um, you know, I mean, that can happen, but, you know, sometimes that's just random dumb luck. I mean, I've seen really horrible players do that. They make some crazy, insane bluff, and for some reason the guy that should not have folded folds, and the other guy calls them, you know, makes the hero call with ace high against them, and then they're like, oh, I just have deuces, I never improved. And it's like, oh, it's good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and the other guy is sitting there like, you can see how pissed he is because he folded, you know, like top pair bad kicker or something. Um, he's just like, shoot, like I bet got called and then you raised? Like top pair bad kicker must not be any good. You know, he didn't make a dumb fold, but he folded what turned out to be the best hand. And the other guy somehow hero calls with ace high again. And the guy who's doing a stupid, insane, dumb bluff wins. So you can play bad and turn a loser into a winner, but I'm just saying it's not that common that you can play intelligently and because you're so good, you win a pot that most people would have lost. But you certainly can like win more or lose less from one hand to the next. And all that stuff adds up. If you lose less on your losing days, your win rate will increase. That is, that is certainly true. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And uh, look forward to our event in November. Yeah. And uh, hopefully there'll be lots of uh, players out there that are also excited about coming and uh, participating with us. Yep. Agreed. Well, thanks a lot. I'll talk to you guys again soon. Okay. Bye, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too.